morning, Africa, and welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington. Today is Wednesday, April the 20th, and here are some of the stories we're covering for you this morning. The World Food Program warns an estimated 20 million people in drought-affected parts of Ethiopia, Kenya, and Somalia face catastrophic levels of hunger if the region is hit in the fourth consecutive year of drought. Hey, but the situation is bad. It continues to deteriorate. We're desperate for these rains to succeed. But even if they do, these populations are exhausted. The water sources are exhausted. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa has declared a state of disaster following deadly floods in the country's eastern KwaZulu-Natal province. We're getting the job done. We're getting delivery done. Hot meals, hygiene packs, sanitary pads, diapers and uh, blankets and mattresses. And Cameroon's military has deployed hundreds of troops to its eastern border with the Central African Republic after rebels abducted at least 35 people. We'll have those stories and more coming up right here on The Break Africa. Stay tuned. And for our top story, the World Food Program warns that an estimated 20 million people in drought-affected parts of Ethiopia, Kenya and Somalia could face catastrophic levels of hunger if the region is hit with the fourth consecutive year of drought. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. The outlook is not good for the Horn of Africa. The rains have failed to come nearly a month into the current rainy season, which lasts through May. The past three years of drought have taken a heavy toll. The World Food Program reports crop failure in Ethiopia has plunged 7.2 million people into acute hunger and killed more than a million livestock. The situation is no better in Kenya, where escalating drought has left more than 3 million people short of food, including half a million who are facing emergency levels of hunger. In Somalia, the WFP says 6 million people, or 40% of the population, are food insecure, with more than 80,000 on the brink of famine. Speaking from the Kenyan capital, Nairobi, the WFP Regional Director for East Africa, Michael Dunford, says the number of hungry people could spiral from an estimated 14 million to 20 million if the rains fail to come yet again. The situation is bad. It continues to deteriorate. We're desperate for these rains to succeed. But even if they do, these populations are exhausted. The water sources are exhausted, the livestock are dying, the crops are failing, and we are heading to a very severe situation unless we're able to pull it back from the precipice. Dunford says there is anecdotal evidence that children already are dying from malnutrition-related causes because they are not able to get the nutritional feeding that could save their lives. He says the WFP is severely underfunded. It only has received 13% of a required 300 70 million dollars since that appeal was launched in january he says the number of people needing help has increased as have the costs he says the wfp now requires 473 million dollars to scale up its operations over the next six months funding gap means the wfp is having to prioritize in such a way that the prevention of malnutrition we now are going to have to focus primarily on the treatment And at some point, even these programs will not have sufficient funding if the current trends continue and we will focus exclusively 
on uh, humanitarian feeding programs. Dunford says the fallout from the conflict in Ukraine is compounding the problems in the Horn of Africa. He says the conflict has sent food and fuel prices soaring to unprecedented highs. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa declared a state of disaster following deadly floods in the country's eastern KwaZulu-Natal province. The record floods have left more than 440 people dead, an estimated 40,000 people homeless, and damaged critical infrastructure and hundreds of schools. The declaration is expected to speed up much-needed aid to flood-hit areas, as Linda Giftas reports from Johannesburg. Only two weeks after South Africa lifted its disaster declaration for the coronavirus pandemic, the country has found itself in another crisis. The national government is immediately directing $68 million to clean up what officials have called catastrophic flooding that has left people homeless and without water or electricity. Mtiaz Suleiman is the head of the charity Gift of the Givers, which has been distributing aid since the floods hit last week. We're getting the job done, we're getting delivery done. Hot meals, hygiene packs, sanitary pads, diapers and uh, blankets and mattresses uh, and water for the areas, for the centres where the people were. It, they became a bigger need for water because they didn't realize that all the water pipes have been washed away. They tried to get as much water to as many people as possible. While the city of Durban and the surrounding province of KwaZulu-Natal was the worst hit, other provinces like the Eastern Cape also saw flooding and deaths. Officials are still quantifying the damage to critical infrastructure like the Durban port, highways and telecommunications. The Minister of Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs, Nkosazana Dlamini-Zuma, who is leading the response, told a media briefing Tuesday the scale of disaster requires a national response. In a way, gives hope and also is a vessel for coordination and rallying the entire nation, the entire government, and also the international support. Climate change was highlighted as a cause of the severity of the flooding, but poor infrastructure and city planning, with many informal settlements located on vulnerable, low-lying areas, was another factor. Dlamini Zuma says while the disaster brought a great deal of sorrow, it's also posing an opportunity. We should be building back better, so nobody should build back in the riverbanks and also in floodplains, but also in some of the areas which are just geographically not right for residential areas. So it means as we build back, we must build better. But people living in the worsted communities, particularly informal settlements in low-lying areas, say their doubtful promises of better housing will be kept. The settlement called Mega Village in South Durban has been hit by floods in 2017 and 2019. Cosmos Cañeza is a community volunteer who helped victims in those incidents and the most recent floods last week. Those people are looking at, at a, a proper way to be away from that, that river so that they won't become a victims again. Those uh, people from 2019 floods, people, they didn't get any help. They were just in the transit uh, camp houses. There was a budget for them, but... They never see even a cent on that budget. Kanyeza says most people can't afford to rebuild, let alone look for safer areas to erect a new metal shack. For now, he says foam mattresses and blankets were delivered by the government Monday so victims can sleep more comfortably at a temporary shelter in a community hall. 
Suleiman, who leads Gift of the Givers, says on the ground, recovering the dead and basic humanitarian needs remain the focus before larger infrastructure can be considered. People have lost everything, all the material values. So the, basically the funding is right now, the simple stuff. And then, of course, you repair the schools and the hospitals. Officials said the port of Durban, the busiest in southern Africa, which has been severely disrupted by the weather, will be cleared and operational again in the next six days. Other timelines for rebuilding roads and repairing more than 600 schools have yet to be announced. Officials say the overall disaster declaration is expected to remain in place for three months to provide enough time and resources to rebuild. Linda Giftash for VOA News, Johannesburg. And still in South Africa, foreign nationals in the country have welcomed the arrest and appearance in court of seven suspects in connection with the gruesome murder of a Zimbabwean national Elvis Nyati in Dipslot, Johannesburg, two weeks ago. Nyati was stoned and burned to death by a vigilante group that was searching for undocumented immigrants and criminals in the area. Tuto Kumalo reports from Johannesburg. The seven suspects appeared at the Randbeck Magistrate Court in Johannesburg Tuesday. The prosecutor told the court that initially 14 people were arrested but the other seven had to be released as they could not be positively linked to the case at this stage. The seven are facing charges of premeditated murder, attempted murder, kidnapping, assault with intent to cause grievous bodily harm, robbery and extortion. The magistrate asked the seven if they had legal representatives for the case. Four of them confirmed that they will get private attorneys while the remaining three requested legal aid. The magistrate remanded the suspects in custody and asked them to return to court on Friday for the bail hearing. Nagutoma Bena, chairman of the Zimbabwe community in South Africa, told VOA that they welcomed the arrests of the suspects. We will be following this court case because if it indeed they are the ones that were involved in the gruesome killing of Elvis Inyad. They must stay in jail forever. The state must throw away the keys of jail. They must rot in prison because what they did is inhuman. Another Zimbabwean national, Gretman Kwebu, told VOA that they hope the court will do a thorough job and give sentences that will serve as a deterrent if the accused are found guilty. This case won't go far. Soon or later, this case will be thrown away because we know justice system in South Africa is not doing well, especially if a case like this that happened to a foreign, no one care about it. So this case is not going anyway. Meanwhile, National Prosecuting Authority spokesperson Pindi Mjonondwane told VOA that there is no doubt that they have the right suspects in custody. With the information that is contained in the docket currently, we are satisfied that a, a prima facie case has been established and all seven accused has a case to answer. Hence, uh, the prosecution uh, has now been instituted against all seven of them. Nyatis Meda received an international outcry and was widely condemned. Many blame it on rising anti-foreigner sentiment and intimidation of immigrants by vigilante groups who accuse them of stealing jobs from South Africans and committing crime. The fight over jobs in South Africa has often resulted in xenophobic violence, 
that has killed dozens since 2008. Tusukumalo for VOA News, Johannesburg. Debrick Africa continues. Cameroon's military has deployed hundreds of troops to its eastern border with the Central African Republic after CAR rebels this month abducted at least 35 people. The military says the rebels are targeting merchants, farmers and ranchers and stealing money and cattle. Moki Edwin Kinzeka reports from Yawunde. Cameroon's military says scores of troops on Monday raided villages and forests on its eastern border with the Central African Republic to free civilians held captive by CAR rebels. Speaking via a messaging application, Colonel Dominique Njoka says he led troops on the rescue mission in Bere, a border administrative unit where rebels were holding hostages. When we arrived, unfortunately they saw us, so they opened fire. But we reacted immediately and... Uh, in the confrontation, they ran away. Before running away, they killed one hostage and one was seriously wounded. So he died. However, out of the seven, we liberated five arrived safely. We keep on asking on the population to cooperate, to give us information at the appropriate time so that we can react. Njoka says some of the rebels escaped across the porous border while others are still hiding in forests in Cameroon. He says they deployed hundreds of troops to the area to flush out the rebels who have abducted at least 35 civilians in Cameroon in the past three weeks. CAR authorities say since March, fighting with rebels has increased. The UN peacekeeping mission to CAR MINUSCA last week said rebels pushed out of several towns were hiding on the border with Cameroon. Minuska said the CAR rebels were fighting to control border towns, including Bamari and Alindao. Authorities say the rebels are crossing the border to escape fighting with CAR's military and to steal and abduct for ransom. 50-year-old Cameroonian cattle rancher Buba Alami says his son was among the freed hostages. He spoke on Cameroonian media, Canal Day TV and Equinox Radio. Alami says a strange visitor informed him that his 20-year-old son was in captivity in the forest on the border with the Central African Republic. He says the stranger told him the captors wanted at least a $5,000 ransom for his release, but did not tell him where and how the ransom should be paid. Alami says he spent two sleepless nights not knowing how to get in touch with either the abductors or his son. Cameroon's military says they were able to free the five hostages after villagers informed them where the rebels were hiding in the forest. Cameroon shares a more than 900-kilometer-long border with the Central African Republic. Cameroon this month sent its chief of defense to the border area to mobilize troops to stop the rebels from entering its territory. The Central African Republic descended into violence in 2013 when then-President Francois Bozizé was ousted by the Seleka, a coalition from the Muslim minority that accused him of breaking peace deals. 
The CAR government in 2020 accused Bozizi of supporting rebel attacks, which he denied. The ongoing fighting has forced close to a million Central Africans to flee neighboring countries, including Cameroon, Chad, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and Nigeria. Moki Edwin Kinzaka for VOA News, Yawundi, Cameroon. Legal and institutional obstacles lie ahead for many trying to get justice for crimes committed in central Mali. That's according to a new report out from Amnesty International. Osman Diallo, a Sahel researcher for the organization, spoke to Ricky Shryok about the impunity in central Mali, which he says is getting worse. It's known that there are more and more uh, uh, cases of extrajudicial executions and uh, unlawful killings by armed groups, especially uh, with the multi uh, puissance of the Malian army since January and Operation Keretigi, uh, for which they have been conducting operations uh, with uh, Russian instructors, lately in Morab and uh, today uh, in Ombori also. Uh, it's also very concerning because uh, we think that human rights uh, and uh, international humanitarian law should be central in these operations, and it hasn't been the case. And who is, quote, running the army? I know there's obviously always a formal structure, but, you know, where where is the hierarchy in the army at this point in Mali? And is that part of uh, the issue when it comes to impunity? Yes, it has been. Uh, it is part of the issue. And as for the hierarchy, it's very simple. It's the president of the republic, the minister of defense, and then the chief of army staff who are the main responsible for the conduct of the army in Mali. And they are ultimately responsible for successes and uh, losses, but also for human rights abuses and violations and failure to redress the cause uh, uh, in, in, in those abuses and violations. So uh, so I would say that those are the main people that are responsible and that can act to change the tide currently in Mali, uh, especially as it relates to uh, abuses committed by the military. As you know, in Mali, uh, the code of military justice is being uh, reviewed right now. And in the current code, uh, the military prosecutors do not have uh, autonomy to initiate charges against military and members of the uh, army that are accused of committing human rights abuses and violations. And we believe that this all the pursuit is an obstacle to justice and to the quick administration of justice, uh, and it should be uh, reviewed in the current military code. What is Amnesty International's position on the first steps to take toward how Malians can live in more safe circumstances for their daily lives? So on this matter, I think it is up to the government of Mali uh, to respect its uh, national and international obligations. So uh, we have no comments about the conduct of the war, uh, only as it relates to uh, the respect of human rights uh, and international humanitarian law, which cannot be negotiated or willed away uh, by the Malian authorities. And it is important, uh, more than four years after some of the incidents that we documented in the report, that the... uh, government of Mali uh, strengthen the judiciary, give it its full capacities in order to conduct investigations, but also uh, allow the judiciary to do its work so that, uh, for example, members of the intelligence services, the Direction Générale de la Sécurité d'État, cannot intercept people that have been accused or convicted of uh, crimes related to the conflict or uh, uh, free them or uh, detain them against the knowledge of the judiciary. That was Osman Diallo a Sahel researcher for Amnesty International. He was speaking to VOA's Rikish Ryok.
new report by the Afrobarometer says the corruption in Malawi continues to rise largely because of the government's indecisiveness to address the problem. The survey shows that 66% of Malawians are dissatisfied with the government efforts against fraud and mismanagement and they want to see swift action around corrupt officials. Lamek Masina reports from Blantyre. Afrobarometer is a pan-African nonpartisan survey research network that provides data on African experiences and evaluations of democracy, governance, and quality of life. Its latest report on public perception of corruption in Malawi shows that the problem has tremendously increased over the past year in this southern Africa country. Joseph Chunga heads the Afrobarometer team in Malawi. People want to see stiffer action and swifter action um, against the government officials as well as businesses are involved in the corruption. A majority of Malawians uh, think cabinet ministers, government officials who are charged with the corruption uh, should be fired immediately. The report also shows that two-thirds of Malawians feel the government is doing a poor job in fighting corruption. The Malawi Police Service tops the list of most corrupt institutions, followed by the Malawi Revenue Authority, business executives, civil servants, and Office of the President and Cabinet. The survey also names others among the most corrupt groups, including members of parliament, traditional leaders, religious leaders, councillors, judges and magistrates, and non-government organizations. Political analyst George Piri says the findings of the survey are not surprising. Piri, also former lecturer of political science at the University of Livingstonia, says the problem is that the government hasn't taken the fight against corruption seriously despite its attempt to arrest those suspected of fraud and mismanagement. Uh, issues of corruption can only end in court, and uh, none of the cases of serious corruption that have taken place in Malawi have been taken to court to finalize the the process. And the the reports of corruption in the country are overwhelming, but the government does not take these cases to court to end them, which means that leaders are benefiting from these processes. Susan Ntua Piri is the chief corruption prevention officer for the Anti-Corruption Bureau in Malawi. She says the findings of the survey will assist the Bureau on how best to align its programs with what people are saying on the ground. Ndua says some efforts are underway to enhance the fight against corruption. At the moment, we are also looking at what we call game changes. One of the game changes is the um, establishment of the Financial Crimes Court which we are working together with the Minister of Justice, the Judiciary, to make sure that this is in place. The Afrobarometer survey also shows that 78% of Malawians are reluctant to report corruption to authorities for fear of retaliation. However, Antua says the Anti-Corruption Bureau is working to develop a whistleblower policy that will lead to the formulation of the legislation aimed at providing protection to those who report corruption incidents to the Bureau. Lamek Masina for VOA News, Blanta, Malawi. Ivory Coast President Alassane Ouattara has named Timoko Milet Kone, governor of the West African Central Bank, as his vice president. The 80-year-old leader made the announcement during an address to parliament 
days after Prime Minister Patrick Achi and his government resigned. Watara reappointed Prime Minister Achi, who tabled his resignation and that of his government last week with plans to slim down the size of the cabinet to govern the world's top cocoa producer. And that's it for this edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending this morning with us. For more African news and features, visit our website at voanews.com. Until next time, I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington, wishing you a great week ahead, Africa. Hello, I'm Carol Castiel, host of Encounter. Next, our periodic update on Africa. Susan Stigant, Africa Director at the U.S. Institute of Peace, and Joshua Mazervi, Senior Fellow at the Heritage Foundation, discuss the scale and depth of Russian influence in Africa, especially the mercenary Wagner Group, famine in the horn, the status of the Ethiopian conflict, and much more. An update on Africa. That's Encounter.